We should get this over with now. Turn to your neighbor and say, oh, no. Turn to your other neighbor and say, it's the money sermon. Should I, you know, I, I could pray so I wouldn't be looking around and then they'll give you a chance to run. Is that fair? Why are we talking about it? I'm glad you asked. We've been for the last several weeks trying to answer the why question about the things we do at church. You come here and you kind of sit through the service and there's some consistent things that happen. We, we talked the first week about why do we even come to church at all? Why get together? Why regularly gather in the ways that we do? And we tried to answer that question. Second week, we talked about the two kind of biggest parts of our service. Why is there singing? Why do we sing together? As unusual as that is in our world. And why is there preaching? And so we talked about that. Last week, we talked about what happens at the very end of the service. Why do we have a time of invitation or response? And tried to to flesh that out. So today... We talk about why do we take an offering? Why, when you come to church, and just about any church anywhere, does it in some way? Is there an expectation or a moment in the service that a plate is passed like we do it, or a box is mentioned in the back that you can make a donation into, or whatever other ways that it happens? I'll tell you, the, the f- is funnest a word? It is today. The funnest offering I've ever been a part of. And those, that's an oxymoron, right? Funnest offering. Have you ever thought that? It was. It was the funnest offering. I forget the name of the church. I forget where it was, but I know I was sitting out there, and all of a sudden the band cranks up. I mean, big happy music, loud and boisterous. And, there was the, and, and at that point, these two people came out to, actually they were two rather large fellows, came out with, with uh, plates or buckets, or I don't remember what it was, and row by row, they dismissed the crowd to come up front and walk by and put their money in the offering. And these people were happy about it. They, got out, they were dancing in the aisles. It was not obviously a Baptist church, yes? They skipped and hopped down those aisles and sang along with that music and put their offering in that, that box, and, and it was a big happy time. Anybody ever been in a service like that where you've done something like that? And, and here's the thing. If you got out of your seat, and you came by the bucket, you better put something in it. Because if you didn't have an offering, you were supposed to stay in your seat, which was interesting. You know, I didn't know that. (laughs) And I went down the aisle because I thought that's what we were doing and walked right by, and they tapped me on the shoulder. (laughs) Yes, sir. Actually, it was more like, yes, sir. (laughs) And, of course, I... It was fascinating to see that. Now, most of the time in offerings in the churches I've been in, it's not a big happy song that we should sing. It for more like we should play a funeral dirge, right? And the organ, very solemn moments of introspection. and So you may have wondered, why do they do that? Here's the, the, the negative answer to the question. We take an offering... The reason we take an offering is not because God needs your money. You need to know that. It's not because even the church needs your money. Like, what? I know the finance committee is going, wait a minute, preacher. Should have run this by us. We don't take an offering 
because the church needs your money. If God wanted our church to prosper and succeed, he'd do it with you or without you. With me or without me. God's purposes will ultimately prevail. And it's not dependent on my pocketbook or my income. He can work around me. He has many times. We need, you need to understand that. God, the reason we take an offering isn't because we're trying to grow a church. The reason we take an offering, the reason Scripture tells us to give is because God wants to grow you. The offering is about growing in our faith in Jesus Christ. It is a moment of worship where we come together as God's people and have the privilege of giving. That's why maybe the most popular verse often quoted in regard to offering is, The Lord loves a cheerful giver. Actually, that word you've probably heard is the word we get in English, our word hilarious from. The Lord loves a hilarious giver. And it's not because I wrote that check. Good luck cashing it. (laughs) No, that is not what he means. Not at all. It's an attitude, right? It's an attitude of our heart that we express in worship. I want to look at a passage of Scripture today in the book of 1 Timothy. If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, you you can follow along 1 Timothy chapter 6. If you didn't bring a Bible and you'd like to, to use like one of those paper ones, there's some tucked under if you brought your device, phone, tablet, whatever, you probably have an app, and we're even going to throw them up on the screen because, you know, we just do that a lot of ways. Um, But we want to look at at Paul's letter to Timothy, his son in the faith, as he talks about this idea of finances, this idea of giving, this idea of money. And we're going to start in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 6, kind of the theme that he'll build upon from there. And he says this to Timothy, his son in the faith, but godliness... With contentment is great gain. Now, if I were to ask you, in our world, what do you think is the definition of great gain? It would probably be material, right? I mean, that's kind of how we're presented things in in life. We are bombarded, in fact, with advertisements for things. And I don't know if you've noticed, but there's always a new thing, isn't there? Always. Like, how many of you have the iPhone 4? A few. See, these are, these, that's amazing. How many of you have the iPhone 5? 6. 6S. 7. Oh, we have a few. Right? And every year, there's a big event, and they come out, and Apple does it. Now I could go through the Samsung Galaxy line and probably do the same thing. Uh, how many of you, hey, here's a fun thing. How many of you have a TV that's thicker than that? That you watch regularly? You know, like, like, you know, you can hold it with one hand these days, the old kind, right? Why? It's, there's always something new. And, and, you know, 720, ah, we don't need 720, we need 1080, no, we need 4K. Ooh, ah. There's a lot of stuff in the world, and there's always something else. There's a newer edition of a car. I had a privilege this week, I, I told you last week I was went, going down to Cuba, and the car that we got to ride everywhere in, was a hybrid. You would think, really? They have those in Cuba? Yeah, it was a 52 Chevy body (laughs) with a I don't know what year Hyundai engine and a Toyota steering column. Hybrid. (laughs) And we went all over Cuba in that thing, you know, and we would, we were, they picked us up at the airport and 
actually like three planes had land, landed at the same time. One of them was from Europe. There was an American Airlines. I don't know where it came from and us. And when they pulled up in that blue 52 Chevy to pick us up, you should have seen all the cameras come out. Oh, like it was something amazing. I'm like, dear Jesus, please, Lord, get us where we're going. Because the first thing they did was pulled up and took a, a, like a gallon of oil and said, we need to put some oil in here and poured a bunch of oil in it. And we're driving along the third, fourth day, and about that, I'm, I'm sitting in there, and I, what's that smell? And then smoke starts coming up from under the seat. Now, and the guy, the, our translator, I was in the front seat, he was in the back, he tapped the driver on the shoulder, Pastor Eddie down there, and, and said something in Spanish, probably because he didn't want me to know what he was saying, and Eddie reached under his seat and t- shoved some rags, and the smoke stopped. Ah, crisis averted. Perfect. <laughs> right? 1952. There's always, and we would think 1952, that's a, that's a showpiece, right? Perfectly restored, and the more original equipment, the better. Because in our world, great gain means something more, and something better, and something bigger, and something newer, and something more expensive. And for Timothy, Paul writes, great gain is a different thing altogether. Great gain is godliness with contentment. Godliness, the the understanding that your life is ultimately under the authority of God and how you live your life should best reflect His lordship and your fellowship of Him. Contentment, doesn't matter what I have, I'm happy with it. That's great gain. Now, if, if it was true that great gain was really about how much stuff we had, how new it was, how big the bank account was, how big the house, well, whatever the stuff is that we have, you would think that the moment of greatest gain, the moment when we leave this life, we'd be able to take the most stuff with us, right? But what does the next verse say? Verse 7, we brought how much into this world? Nothing. And what can we take out of it? Nothing. Great gain if, if that was really it, if stuff was really the definition, if finances and bank accounts and, and items of consumer goods was great gain, then you would think at that moment, as they say, there'd be that U-Haul behind the hearse or however the joke goes. But it's not. We know in that moment, when you are approaching the end of your life, not many people say from their deathbed, you know what, could you please bring my TV in here? I just want to see it one more time. No, who do they surround themselves with? In that moment, what are they most focused on? The relationships that they had, the people that were important to them. We understand implicitly in the most basic way what great gain really is. In fact, if you were to ask people about this idea of contentment, and maybe you, let me just ask you, since there's people here. When was the time in your life that you would describe yourself as the most contented? Think about that for a second. When was the time in your life when you were the most contented? You got it? Let me ask you this. Was it the time in your life when you were the wealthiest and had the most stuff and had the newest and the bestest It wasn't for me. In fact, for most people, the time in their life when they felt most contented often corresponds when really they had the least 
or a, a lot less than they have now. In fact, as we pursue more the great gain that we think is really great gain, we find out no matter how much you get, that appetite is never truly satisfied. The more we go for, the more we go after, oh, I've got this and I've got this, I've got the iPhone 7. It's January. By uh, August, guess what they'll be? Something else. And it's the 10th anniversary of the iPhone, so it's going to be amazing. (laughs) Right? That's what they say. We, We have that understanding that when we pursue those things, when we want the most stuff, that doesn't breed contentment. The more we chase after stuff, it's often the more we are, the less we think we have. He goes on in the next verse and says this. He says, if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. I'm happy to see as I look around this building, everybody is wearing clothes. Can I get an amen? It ain't that kind of church. How many of you have eaten today? Most of you, I'm going to guess. If you didn't eat, it might have been because you don't like breakfast. How many of you had a cup of coffee today? Hey, now we're talking, aren't we? Yeah. You have clothes on. You had something to eat today. Guess what? Contentment. You have what you need. You have, according to to Paul, to Timothy, we should be content with that. Notice what he says in verse 9. People who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. People that want to get rich, that want to live the rich life, that are always chasing more and more and more, Admiral Akbar would pronounce to you, it's a trap. No Star Wars fans. I'm very disappointed. Who did not get that reference? I need to know who to pray for. No, okay. It's a trap. Wanting to pursue, wanting to get more, wanting to always go after the, the next and the best and the bigger and the more expensive and the more technologically advanced thing is a trap. It will grab you. We know that. There are these things that I got. I, I've, I've said this before. I, I, I was in freshman at college. In our orientation process, there was a table, and it said discover, and I'm like, I'm a student. I want to discover. So I went to the discover table and saw it said discover card. And I discovered that I couldn't afford the things that that card would let me buy. But I also discovered a young lady. You see how those two things work together? Yeah. And I fell into a trap. (laughs) This is about finances, just to be clear. Hi, honey, if you're watching. No. It's about saying, I can't afford that really nice dinner. I don't have the money on my college student salary, which was zero. But Discover Card can, so let's go. It's a trap. And it, oh, by the way, it's not about how much money you have. Did you know there are millionaires that file bankruptcy? Because it's a trap. It's a trap. That desire to want more and pursue more, 
that appetite that keeps pushing you will trap you will get you you can't run away from it notice he goes on and says verse 10 this is a phrase a lot of people have quoted for the love of money actually some people say just for money is the root of all sorts of evil it's the love of money money in and of itself is not intrinsically evil it's that desire for it that pursuit of it that wanting to be rich that pursuing more that appetite that grows that love of money is the root of all kinds of evil some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many many griefs so the desire for more the pursuit of wealth it's a trap and if you fall into it it'll take you places you never wanted to go and you never meant to go That's what Paul says, Timothy. So what's the appropriate response? Verse 11. But you, man of God, flee from all this and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. What's the antidote to pursuing wealth, to pursuing stuff? It's to pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. You know what happens? That appetite, one of the ways that it grows is as we become aware of things that we don't have, we kind of gravitate toward them. And we, because of our media-saturated culture, are aware of the latest and the newest and the bestest gadget that's out there, the newest car with this feature or that that thing, this better gas mileage. We're aware of the the newest television, the higher resolution, the better whatever. We're very aware. And that awareness feeds in us the appetite to pursue it. And Paul says, don't feed that appetite. Run away. Flee. If you were to put me in a cage with a lion, what would I want to do? Get out. Right? Definitely. You, you might tell me, and a lot of people might feel, well, I'd just be really careful. And you'd be really dead. <laughs> potentially. Or really hurt. I want to get out. And Paul says to Timothy, this is a cage with a lion. It's a trap. It will grab you. It will hold on to you. It will not end well with you. So instead of pursuing This wanting to live rich, pursue something else. Change your awareness of the things you lack. Rather than saying, I lack the latest phone, I lack the latest TV, I lack the latest vehicle, I lack the latest whatever, I don't don't have the nicest oven or microwave or pick anything, I realize I'm going to be aware of the things I lack in regard to righteousness. There's a lot in my life that's not righteous. When I become aware of that, I might pursue righteousness. There's a lot in our lives that wouldn't be described as godliness. And I can become aware of my lack of godliness, and so I pursue that. There's, and you could go on. There are times when I'm not a person of faith or a person that, that exhibits love or, or endures or lasts or perseveres, however you'd like to, to look at that, or even is the gentlest person. And Paul says to Timothy, As you're thinking about the things that you don't have, don't let your focus be on the material things you don't have. Let your focus be on these qualities of God and godliness that you don't have so that that awareness feeds that appetite and your life is directed that way. Does that make sense? I think it makes sense to me. 
So what do we do in response to that reality? Skip forward a few verses in the, nat- in the interest of time to, to verse 17. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command those who are rich in this world. Newsflash, that is you. If you are in this room, you are most likely in the top 1-2% wealthiest people on the face of this earth. I told you last week, and I mentioned we were in Cuba. It is fascinating to go there and to see the difference between the two cultures, to see the difference between the way people live. We went out the last night, the pastor and his family, his wife and three daughters, and our translator, Gabriel, and his wife and two daughters, plus the three of us. So that's 12 people, right? So I just want you to do some math. You ready? Just a comparison thing. If you were to go to dinner in the Keys... With 12 people, 12 people, we had lobster tail. Mm-hmm. Only one person had that. Several had shrimp. Two of them had fish. It looked like some sort of salmon type. I don't think it was, but that's the kind of look it had, a swordfish or salmon type fillet kind of a thing. A couple of us had a grilled lamb shank. Twelve of us. All of us had dessert. Amen. All of, you know, it was a big celebration last night there. Everybody, flan for everybody, right? Okay. So if you went to your favorite restaurant or one of those in our neighborhood, how much would that kind of a dinner cost you with 12 people? Just curious. Somebody said 500 on the low end. Is that acceptable? A thousand dollars. That's a nice restaurant. <laughs> so somewhere between five hundred and a thousand. Is that probably it? Uh, Twelve people. Our bill. A hundred and three dollars. Amen. Right. <laughs> Why? Because the average salary in Cuba. a month. Now, that restaurant, the average people weren't eating there. It was busy that night because there was a tour bus parked outside. So all of the people on the tour came because, you know, they were were Asian tourists. I I don't know if they were from Asia or from America. I'm going to guess maybe Asia because that big kind of a tour bus doesn't really happen out of America right now. Um, There was our group. There were several big groups and just a very few that looked like Cuban nationals. $100, $100, I think, is nothing, right? You can spend that at Burger King here if you tried. <laughs> but for them, it was huge. It's a big number, a massive number. So when I say, or when Paul says, command those who are rich in this present world, we need to understand living where we do in America and making the salaries we do, even if it's a little bit in your mind, you are rich. I think the, the statistics from a few years ago, America is about 5% of 
of the world's population and consumes almost 40% of the resources? A, because we can afford it, and B, because we kind of gotten used to it. You do things like go into your house and get a glass and lift a handle or turn a knob and water comes out, you can drink. Just came back from Cuba. Let me add this. You have toilet seats and toilet paper. It's a beautiful thing. We are rich. Do you know, this statistic always fascinates me, the estimated amount to ensure that everybody on the face of the earth right now has clean water, basic nutrition, and very basic health care is 20 to $25 billion, which happens to be the amount Americans spent last year on dog and cat food. What we spend in America just on food, we spend over $50 million on care and grooming and vet bills for our pets. That money would feed and bring clean water to the places in our world that don't have it. We're rich. Even if you're the poorest person in this room, you're pretty rich. And what does he say? Command those who are rich in this present life not to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Everything you have comes from God. Everything you have is a gift from God. That first breath you took when you woke up this morning is a gift from God Almighty. Those clothes that you opened your closet to choose from, they are a gift from God. The food that you consumed for breakfast or will for lunch or dinner or whatever you'll eat today, that is a gift from God. You say, no, Pastor, I work hard. I work long hours or I worked for years at my job, and I've retired, and I've retired and saved well. Yes, you have. Good for you. But notice what Scripture says even about that. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 17. On the screen, I hope, because I don't have it marked. You may also say to yourself, My power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. Verse 18 tells us this, But remember the Lord your God, for it is He who gives you the ability even to produce wealth, and so confirms His covenant which he swore to your forefathers as it is today. So even the skills that you have to produce the wealth that you live on is a gift from God Almighty. Bottom line thing that Paul would say. Now he goes on in verse 18. So command those who are rich. Our hope's not in wealth, it's in God because everything comes from him. Verse 18, command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds and to be generous and willing to share be rich in good deeds your wealth according to god according to scripture according to the bible shouldn't be measured by a number in a bank account it should be measured by the life you live the good that you do you say well what is this you know, good good deeds we're a baptist church we don't like to talk about that right because we say ephesians 2 8 9 is for by grace we've been saved through faith is not of ourselves the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. What does the next verse say? 
Anyone know? Might I have to look it up? We are his workmanship, created to do good works. We're saved, redeemed, not because of our good works, but when we come to know God and we understand all that we have is from him, then the result is we do those good things that need to be done. We become rich in the good that we do. And our hope isn't in what we have, but in it almost is like in what we give. Have you noticed? Sometimes when you get something new, it's harder to share it. Isn't that what he says? Be generous and share. Let me give you an example. This was personal. When I told you in December, we went up to a trail relay race, right? Susan's shaking her head. Sheila's in the back. Still, still sore, right? Yeah, it was fun. We had a great time, camped out, ran in the trails in, uh, in the Alafia River State Park. And um, my birthday's in December, and Denise surprised me a little early with a brand new Garmin Forerunner, uh, what do you call it, um, GPS watch. So I could track everything. I could track my distance, my pace. It was going to be awesome. And I had my new watch. I was so excited. First runs I was going to get to use it were in the woods at the Alafia River State Park. And so we had our group. We had a team of eight. Actually, well, one of them was sick, or her daughter was sick, couldn't make it, and we had someone that I'd never met before from another town that was friends of part of our team. And so here we are, we set up our camp, and we start running, and I'm the third, second or third runner, so I've run my first leg. And a few minutes later, this, this young lady who had never met before, met her like, you know, an hour or two before when we got there, said, oh, I forgot my watch. Hey, you've got one. Can I borrow your watch? This watch, this one, yeah, I, I just need to know how, how far I've been because, you know, it was like a five or six mile run and just wanted to know where she was and, and, and what do you say? No? There's mile markers that tell you when there's a mile to go, so the first five, just guess, the last one, you'll be fine. So begrudgingly... I handed it to her. My prayer life improved <laughs> over the next few minutes. Dear God, that's my new watch. I really like that watch. It's a beautiful watch. Keeps good time. It's hard to share new stuff, isn't it? When you're fulfilling that appetite and you've got that new thing and, and it's, it's still shiny, you know? No scratches on it. No, no dings, and I want to give it to somebody I just met. Even though she's going to give it back, it's hard. But what does it say? Verse 18, command them to do good, be rich in good deeds, be generous and willing to share. See, when you pursue more and more and more, and that's your goal, and that's your thing, when the opportunity comes up to share, it's hard to say to that person who doesn't have shoes, well, let me give you these new $150 or whatever price you paid for them, brand new shoes. You, you usually think, oh, I got an old pair at home. Yeah? I don't really wear it anymore. It's got a little bit of a tear on it. I'll give that because that won't really cost me much. He goes on, verse 19. In this way, they will meaning you and me, the rich who give and share and don't put our hope in wealth, 
who are godly and content. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of life that is truly life. So there's a tension here, isn't there? I, I see it. Here's the tension as I see it. You may hear something else, but here's what I think. The question is that I have to answer is what, I, what do I really think the good life is? What do I really believe is life that is truly life? What do I really believe that Jesus would say was life and life abundant? Do I believe it is and it consists of what I have amassed for my own pleasure and benefit? Or do I believe the life that is truly life is about that which I give and about the good deeds that I do and about the attitude of my heart that doesn't seek after more but seeks after God? Because at some point, you you have to make that choice. I mean, Jesus was even harsher. Didn't he say, you cannot serve both God and stuff? He didn't say it's hard to do. He didn't say with the right discipline and effort, you can. He said, you cannot do that. And our world tempts us. Our culture particularly tempts us to serve a particular God. And so when we gather together and we sing our songs and we have our sermon as part of that, in our tradition, in our culture, we pass a plate person to person. And it's not because our church is like behind in our budget and we really need your help or they're going to turn the lights out because you are very generous. You have been for the last several years and and our church is in an amazing financial position because of your generosity. We're able to do some things maintenance-wise and upkeep-wise that we hadn't in past years because you've been generous, and that's a wonderful thing. So this sermon isn't like a, a guilt thing. Hey, listen, things are really bad, and if you don't give, we're going under, as if the church of Jesus Christ depends on you. No, this sermon is, well, let's just say, I hope, in some way, meant to liberate, to be freeing. To know that you can come together with people and that act of worship, that moment in the service where in this context we pass the plate, you can give generously and share. Oh, and by the way, it doesn't just happen here and it doesn't only happen here. This isn't just about what happens at one point in the service. This should be about a life lived, finding opportunities as those who are rich in this present life, to be generous and to share. We give. We take an offering and give you the opportunity to give because it is an act, yes, of obedience. We've said that about most of these things, haven't we? I could just stand up here and say, God says to give, amen, let's pray. But there's more to it than just the mechanism of giving. It is the attitude of the heart that God is most interested in. And in a worship setting, the offering 
should be a time of joy that in that you are saying, I'm not pursuing this. I recognize God has given me everything I have, everything as a gift from him, including the ability I had to earn this. And so I give it freely to show it has no hold on my life. It is not my God. It is not my pursuit. And so I can let it go rather than hold on to it. Giving is an act of worship. Giving is an act of liberation. Giving builds into us the very things that Paul said to Timothy, we need to be aware that we lack. Godliness, perseverance, gentleness, faith, love. Because in that moment we say, I'm not pursuing this. That's not feeding my appetite. My appetite, my pursuit, my awareness is of where I lack other things. Now, just for the record, kind of this is the end of it. Wealth is not inherently bad. You can be incredibly wealthy and incredibly godly. And you can be incredibly poor and incredibly ungodly. So it's not, there's not an equation, less dollars equals more godly. The equation is, do you understand that God blessed you in all the ways he did so that you and your riches would be able to be generous and share, that your life should be marked in that way? And the true richness that lays up treasure in heaven where moth does not, moth and rust do not destroy and thieves do not break in and steal is the life that you live and the good that you do. You know, we should have done the offering at the end of the service today, but that'd feel a little manipulative, wouldn't it? No, we did, I didn't do, I, did, I wouldn't do that because again, I don't want to peddle and get, and I don't want you to leave here going, man, I feel really bad, I should give more. That's not the intent. If that's what you're hearing, I would suggest you take a look at a few things. Maybe listen to what we said again today. Maybe spend the next week, every day, just reading 1 Timothy 6, thinking about what he says, thinking about how he's making those arguments to Timothy and think about the point that he's making. See, I don't believe the church should peddle in guilt. We have and we do sometimes and I have and I have done that sometimes. But that's not ultimately for your best. It's manipulative. It's something we can do to get where we want to go. And as a church, I want to be as people, more interested in you becoming the kind of people God wants you to be, not us meeting a budget or making a goal. So, where did we start? I think it's a good place to end. Verse 6, But godliness with contentment is great gain. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I am grateful for your word today. I'm grateful that you have inspired and preserved it so that we can open it and read it and learn from it. I'm grateful for the ministry of Paul, for the life of Timothy, for these words of hope and salvation that he spoke, that he taught him, and for these reminders to us. Father, forgive us, forgive me when I've fallen into that trap 
of pursuing more. When my appetite has been fueled by the stuff of this world rather than by godliness and faith and love and gentleness and hope. God, I pray that as people, as your people, we would live out this reality that we would be generous and willing to share. That we would be acutely aware that all we have comes from you. Everything we have is a gift. And that we are able in giving to worship. To express our gratitude and our dependence upon our great God. Lord, we come to the time of response today. I pray you would have your way in these moments. May you convict us where we need it. May you encourage us where we need it. And may we leave here today, because we've met together, ready and eager to share the goodness of our God with a world that is lost without him. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.